0: I'm Tammy Faraday and you're listening to Brave Journeys, the podcast about amazing people who've navigated life's invariable challenges and hardships with courage, authenticity, grit and grace. Where should I start with today's guest, apart from confessing that he's a lifelong hero of mine? Clive Stafford-Smith is one of the world's most distinguished human rights lawyers and the founder and director of Reprieve, a UK-based legal NGO that defends marginalised people who are facing human rights abuses, often at the hands of powerful governments. Clive's dedicated over 25 years working on behalf of defendants facing the death penalty in the United States. He only takes on cases of those who can't afford a lawyer and he's assisted in the representation of over four hundred prisoners and prevented their execution in 98% of cases. In 2000, Clive was awarded an OBE for humanitarian services and has won a raft of awards in the field of human rights that would take literally an hour alone for me to read out. But it's his own journey to becoming one of the world's most fated civil libertarians, which really has me spellbound. And please don't be fooled by his very regal British accent. Whilst Clive most certainly is an intellectual giant, he's an intellectual giant with a heart of gold and a wicked sense of humour who believes that human beings, all human beings, deserve humanity and compassion. Never in my wildest dreams did I imagine I'd be having a chat with Clive Stafford-Smith who'd be talking about a cat fart. (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know, isn't it
0: that my whole day yes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yep. He's extraordinary. Yep, I'm very excited. Buckle up, dear friends, because this episode is going to be epic. This is Clive's incredible story. So you were welcomed into the world in what seemed to be a very affluent upbringing, but things rather dramatically changed. Why is that, Clive?
1: Well, yes, I grew up on the oldest stud farm in Newmarket, which is the oldest racehorsing centre in the world. However, my dad was what the world loosely refers to as bipolar, manic depressive. And, you know, actually, it's one of the things I've really been trying to think through, is how on earth anyone let him have that as a profession, you know, running a, a stud farm in the racing industry in a world that's all about gambling, which is quintessentially the wrong thing for dear old dad to do. So he managed to bankrupt the place um, in fairly short order. And so we lived in actually a huge privilege. I am what we refer to as an OPWM, right? You know what that means? No. That, that means old privileged white male. And we owe the world a lot, right? And Dad bankrupted it all. And that was a wonderful, wonderful thing because it immediately taught me that life was a whole lot better without money. And you could be really, really much happier if you didn't sort of rush after money and things all your life. So that was all that was all fine. In retrospect, perhaps at the time it was a bit of a disaster.
0: That's actually a very fascinating take. How did you come to learn that lesson that money was not going to make you happy?
1: I think it's fair to say, and I don't think you'll mind my saying, that, you know, you grew up in a relatively uh, difficult family. And you can do two things when you're in what a lot of people refer to as a world of being a victim. You can either sort of wallow in it, which is humanly understandable, but really catastrophic for you. As well, as everyone around you, or you can turn those things into something really positive. Uh, you know, a lot of this is not something we sit back and think about, right? It's just something that we respond to. And we you know, those of us who are, are able to be in that situation are really lucky. But I looked around myself and I looked at the intensely privileged private school where basically Radley College, well, let's face it. Can you imagine a way to traumatize a teenager more than making him stand by the side of a rugby pitch saying, rah, rah, Radley, rah, rah? I mean, God, that's (laughs) awful, right? I mean, how humiliating is that for a teenager? But there were far more insidious things about that process and about private education generally, notwithstanding the fact that, you know, I was head boy and incredibly privileged among the privileged. But it's an awful structure. And so when my dad bankrupted it all, it meant that um, I had to look around myself and say, well, is this really the world that I'm a part of? This is really, this is a pivotal moment in my life, but really important. On the morning that I was meant to take my physics S level, Mm -hmm. um, we were going to play these awful group of people called the Young Australians at cricket. (laughs) And... That, you know, cricket was my life still in a large part is a rather ridiculous passion of mine. And I wanted to play for our team against the young Australians. I really, really did. That was a passion. And they said I had to take this exam. And I sat there and I said, you know, I'd do it before, I'd do it after. I don't care when they wanted me to do it, but I want to play. And they wouldn't let me. So I sat there in a silent protest and I didn't write a single word. And I walked out and then I, Chucked in going to Cambridge, chucked in all the science nonsense, and went off to America to do what I really wanted to do, which was um, death penalty stuff. I wanted to be a journalist, a bit like you, Tammy. I found a way to sink even lower in the public estimation, which was to become a lawyer.
0: That's very funny. Well, I started as a lawyer. and then There you go. I you're going up. Yeah. Yeah, you're going up in the world. <laughs> I'm
1: still going down. <laughs>
0: But I want to talk about you deciding not to go to Cambridge and I want to talk to you about so many things. But I I want to go back a little bit because your dad's illness certainly took a toll on your family. You were one of three siblings?
1: Yeah, I'm the youngest. Both of my brother and sister are both there in Australia. I believe so. They ran away. We all did run away from being around my dad, you know, not intentionally, but psychologically. I went first. I was the youngest. I went to America and Mark and Mary went to Australia.
0: Were you aware when you were growing up that your dad was unwell? Did you did you process it that way? Was it something that was discussed? Was it something that you – or was he a frightening character? Did he come across as a sinister character, particularly when he was living the pendulum that is bipolar?
1: Dad was an intensely inspiring person in many ways. His favourite word, which he would bang on ad nauseam about – was enthusiasm, which he would say, "Entheo" means imbued, imbued with God, and he used to say that daily. He was one of those people that you were actually very proud of because he was just so different. I remember when some uh, Jehovah's Witnesses came to the door at the house at the Stud; these poor people came up to you know save our souls, and rather than you know spurn them as some people do, or politely listen as British people might dad invited them in and insisted that they stay for sunday lunch and then harangued the poor people for two hours on some ludicrous theory that he always held about saint paul and you know you just do that sort of thing and he would do it all the time and so he was actually a very exciting person but then And I didn't know, you know, when I was born in 1959 and dad was sectioned uh, in a mental hospital in 1963, I didn't, I had no idea of that until I was researching this book uh, and found all sorts of stuff that my mother had saved. But there came a time when he was really off the rails and my poor mother, and she, she preserved all of this in letters and diaries and things, um, which is great to have. And she sat him down, or rather he was having a bath, and she told him and and recited to him this poem he'd written for her about how she wanted to support him by pointing out uh, that he was off the rails. And he came down to the living room. We were all meant to go on holiday that day. Today is the day you choose whether you're going to live with me or whether you're going to live with her. And if you choose her, I will never... Talk to you again in your life. Wow. And yeah, you know, dad used to do these things, which were actually very difficult, much less difficult for me because I was young and stupid. My brother was much more adult and, you know, very sensitive, notwithstanding, and trying to beat it out of him at school. He just walked out and went and sat in the car to go off with mum. And then Mary left. And I was left there with mum, and I was always clinging to her petticoat metaphorically. And, you know, I just thought this was a decision. I said, all right, well, I'm going to go with none then. Dad was totally deflated, of course, because this was the sort of thing he would do. And at, at heart, he was, you know, immensely insecure. And yeah, of course, you know, he was down to see us the next day. It wasn't like he was never going to talk to us again. But he was a really, really troubled person. And the thing I regret I don't have many regrets in life at all, as I suspect you don't, Tammy. But um, the the thing I do regret is that I spent so much time trying to help my death row clients with similar situations, as in similar, what we refer to as illness. I hate that term. And so little time trying to understand dad until it was much too late. Because if I had tried, you know, I could have worked out what would work for him instead of... uh, instead of him living a very, very difficult life.
0: I I wanted to ask you, why do you have an aversion to the word illness when you're talking about mental health?
1: It's mental illness, because I think a lot of what we call mental illness is actually who you are. You know, when you talk about an illness, we normally mean something that needs to be cured. And an awful lot of what we say about people doesn't need to be cured. It needs to be recognised. And I I, I can tell you about my own things, um, my own idiosyncrasies, as I prefer to see them, because I think it's important to talk about those things in the context of not stigmatizing other people. And in this book about my dad, I was trying to understand him. But most of all, I was trying to understand how he could have fit into the world and had a joyous life rather than how we could force him to be like us and be thoroughly unjoyful. And I really understood my dad's refusal to take medication. Uh, I had an agreement with my sister. but There was a time when Mark, Mary, and I were sitting around, and Mark was really worried that he was going to go like dad. And Mary just burst out laughing, which wasn't terribly kind, because I knew why she was laughing. She said, Mark, it's not you, it's five. Um And I... <laughs> I am clearly you, like my sister Tammy. Um, <laughs> but
0: but that's a very very common feeling for children of parents who have mental illness. They are perpetually sort of on high alert that they that this also might befall them. I mean, I have friends who have parents who are unwell in this regard, and they have spent their entire adult life terrified that they are going to experience bipolar, schizophrenia, whatever it might be.
1: Of course. And um, and I had an agreement with Mary um, that if I did, I trusted her to have me sectioned because it was clearly me. Now, I think I've been incredibly lucky, although some might disagree with this, Tammy, to stay just within the line. And we're all on a spectrum. Um, and dad was happy as a clam when he was manic, right? He really enjoyed life and he would sleep three hours and he would be so enthusiastic about everything he would make life very difficult for people around him because he was engaged in quote business and trying to become the richest person in the world if on the other hand we had recognized him and seen that his other real his real passion was poetry And he loved writing poetry. He loved to recite poetry. And if I had recognized that, then I would have engaged with him on that level. And he could have written all the poems he wanted to write when he was manic. And it wouldn't have upset anyone. It would have given quite a lot of joy to people because he was good. Um, I would have edited them to take some of the chauvinist comments out (laughs) and, and the repetition just to make him look better. But we would have had a really good relationship potentially not without difficulties obviously but instead he was sort of forced into a process you know i I read his careers advice and his careers advice in 1941 said there were five things they said he could be two of which were factory inspector and anyone who knew my dad would know that that's possibly not what dad was going to do with his life not that I've got anything against inspecting factories. So, yeah, I my problem with mental illness is twofold. One is it's ridiculous to distinguish mental illness as a total category apart from physical illness because we are a physical being. But the second, we just don't want to try and cure everyone. We want to try to understand them and then see how we can fit them into the world as opposed to change them so they have to. Fits into our world.
0: Are you arguing that in treating people with mental illness in terms of the way that we currently treat them, we are trying to make the world homogenous? Because I would argue that people who experience mental illness, whatever that might look like and however that might manifest, would like to... Some help often. There are often people who will say, you know, particularly in manic phases, they would say, you know, I'm the most prolific I've ever been. I'm doing the most incredible work I've ever done. And there is a real love of that. And there's a terror, an abject terror of deadening them and of stopping those incredible highs. But the low lows are pretty bad too. And you don't find many people who live with depression. Who say I would like to continue like this ad infinitum? Like they don't tend to say that.
1: No, of course, of course, you're right on that. But look, there are certain things that afflict us that really need a cure, obviously. Um, and I've represented so many people who are just profoundly uh, unwell, and we need to help them. And to begin to help them, we need first to to have a much better understanding of what causes their affliction, and. That's where I think focusing on mental, the mind, is somehow exponentially different than the body. is just kind of stupid for reasons I'm happy to discuss. But the um, the second element, have you ever read the DSM-5 now, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders 5? I haven't
0: read it, but I've had it said to me. Repeatedly.
1: Right. right. <laughs> well, people. I mean, look, there's that and there's the UN thing. And Tammy, I can tell you, you appear in it 27 times. Do I I? I appear, and I'm only making that up, but I I, <laughs> I know I appear throughout it. You know, there are all sorts of things. You know, that mental disorders in that thing includes having more than, like, three drinks a week. That's just silly. I'm sorry, I'm really mentally ill in that case. The, um, the I like my gin and tonic, and it's preserving me um, for a long life by preserving me in a sort of aspic-type gin. I don't really mean that. I mean, I don't overindulge, but their definition of too much is silly. And there's a whole slew of things that are referred to as mental disorders that are just silly and they're defined in ways that are just absurd.
0: You said earlier that you could find yourself in the DSM manual many times over, but in terms of your idiosyncrasies that could possibly like dip into what we know to be a mental health area... Do you want to disclose any of those? Do you want to
1: share of them with me? Of course I do, Tammy, because I'm <laughs> not paranoid about it. And I'm fine with it. And, I, and you know, really, when I was writing this book, the book I was writing which is called The uh, Far Side of the Moon, coming out next year. Please don't pay good money. Just steal it from your local bookshop. But with it, it was originally going to be my dad, bipolar person in Britain, cause all sorts of trouble, but never gets in legal trouble, really, because the British society is pretty, pretty calm. Uh, relatively and then there's another guy called larry Lonchar, who was bipolar who i represented on death row in america where they take a slightly harsher attitude you know he would get depressed and he did need treatment for his depression and so the state of georgia in its wisdom would refuse him medication for depression um, because they wanted him to get depressed and want to die you know suicide by electric chair And he tried many times, and he and I walked towards the electric chair four times, um, came within forty minutes of it, and four times, once came within fifty-eight seconds of it before the U.S. Supreme Court, you know, stayed the case and then reversed the case unanimously. But then, you know, Larry did end up managing to take his own life, but actually in ways that were very. Um, reaffirming, you know, perhaps I should explain that. Please. In the end, he got Christianity. And whatever you think about religion, some people refer to it as the opiate of the masses. Well, it's a good opiate if you're facing a dreadful death at the hands of Georgia. And Larry became convinced he was going to a better place. He dropped his appeals for the fifth time. There was no way I could talk him out of it. Uh, although I did try but I respected his decision at this point because the poor guy had been through so much then I was driving down to the prison the we're driving down and we had to stop um, and get him on the phone and Larry says that he's going to let me pick up his appeals again and I did I ran off it was actually in the truck stop I had to get the judge on the phone from a bank of phones outside the men's toilet with all these truckers going by and Larry meantime is on the phone with my wife Emily and and he asks her, you know, how's life? And then says, Oh, you know, he's happy as a clam, he's off doing battle with the prosecutors. And Larry said, This is what always gets me, he said, Well good, I know it won't succeed, but I had to give him one last chance, because he's the only friend I've ever had. And um there you go, I really I find it very hard to tell this because I don't mind talking about my mental just issues, but talking about this is actually very difficult. You know, I went down and I had to watch him be tortured to death in the electric chair, and Larry was totally calm. And the thing I love most of all was when they asked him if he had any final words, he said, Yes, I do. Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And all of these Christian Georgians, obviously, were horrified that he would go quoting Jesus. Um, But I thought, wow, that's a great way to go out. And, you know, obviously, from my worldview, he didn't go to any better place except he just went. And he was in such misery that that was okay. But actually, being able to help him for eight years was great. I'm so pleased I did it, even though, you know, I didn't actually do anything except give him time to, to to die peacefully. So going back to the question you actually asked, which is somewhat relevant to this, I didn't know for many years because I didn't understand myself, let alone my dad and other people. I didn't understand my own psychology until I was writing this book, and I thought, oh, you know, actually, I can't destigmatize Dad and Larry without taking a bit of a look in the mirror and i found a therapist whose expertise was um, boarding school syndrome because there is this thing that australians do because they're following their idiotic british um, progenitors the white people at least you know i was sent away to school when i was quite young i was just eight some people are sent even earlier and what i didn't understand which is just so obvious when you look back and you can see all of this on youtube Uh, If you want to understand your partner who was sent away to school at a young age, please watch this. It's called The Making of Them, and it's on YouTube, and it's a 34-minute documentary which shows young kids going away to school at that age. It shows in a fairly gendered way, but I think some truth the mother's really traumatized by this, and the father's saying, it'll be the making of them, that's what I did. And then you see the kids going and doing what all of us did, and people who say they didn't, just not telling the truth by and large, um, which is sobbing our eyes out because we're lying in bed at night thinking, I thought love was my teddy bear and my dog and my brother and sister and my home and my mom and dad. Uh, but my mum and dad say love is to give me this great benefit, to send me away to school, to get a leg up in life. Um, who's right? Is it me or my mum and dad? And when you're seven or eight, it's your mum and dad. And so you then internalize the notion that what love is, is to push away and to prepare you to be alone in life. But when you understand it, suddenly you can see how I can deal with, with going to Larry's execution, and a lot of people can't. And I used to think they were weak, right? I used to think, come on, get over it. It's not us being executed. It's our poor clients, and we just got to get on to the next person. And if you can't deal with it, you've just got the wrong approach to life. What I didn't understand was that I'm really the weird one, and the rest of you are not. Um, But, you know, when you look at it that way, you think, wow, well, actually, if someone had told me that before, I would have chosen my profession because I can do it. Because no matter what those schools put me through, I'm able to dissociate when I'm there and I have to be there for one of my plants dying. And a lot of people can't do that. So it's a real advantage. But I should have a little thing on my forehead. Uh, you, Tammy, so that as you approach me, it says, you know, this guy went to boarding school and you just need to know he doesn't do any emotions and it's just not going to happen unless you can get the single worst thing that ever happened, which was...
0: Hmm. Clive, I'm going to push back because yeah. I just saw you two minutes ago getting incredibly emotional about about one of your clients. The fact that you can sit And hold space for someone who is literally taking their last breath. I don't know how you have done that. I actually can't fathom how you've done that. But don't tell me you're not affected by it. because You are profoundly affected by it.
1: Of course I am. Of course I am. But I deeply repress it. And I've only started showing emotion about it in the last few years. I've started showing emotion about bad films like Love Actually. This is weird. This is a whole lifetime of stuff coming up. And I only say that. It's just sort of, from my perspective, it's just kind of interesting to recognize that about myself. And it would have been helpful if I could have warned my first wife that actually she was Italian. She, You know, I've got nothing against Christiana. She was a brilliant, talented person. But she was a bundle of emotions and... I wasn't, and I think we just were never going to recognise that. And if, you know, if I'd even known about myself, I might have been able to tell her. But, you know, I didn't even know. So, you know, enough about me.
0: No, no, not enough about you. It's never going to be enough about you. I'm, I'm, I'm completely fascinated because, you know, boarding school is not something that is very prevalent in the country that I come from.
1: What, what percentage of Australians do it, it? There's seven, 7% of English people go to private schools, but a smaller percentage go to boarding school.
0: I, I don't even know if it would make a percentage. I actually no. don't even know if it would get there. Um, mm. It's certainly the reserve of the elitist of the elitist of the elitist of the elite. But it's also a mindset that I can't get my head around.
1: Yeah, you've got, you've got all your kids. You would never do that to them, right? For several reasons. Just list some of the reasons why you wouldn't do that, because they're obvious, but they're worth thinking about. Because I didn't
0: have children to outsource them. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I've just had a, We've just had the year of COVID, the year from hell, and I'm certainly happy to outsource their education <laughs> because I'm the lousiest teacher that I know, ever I
1: know, I love home ed. I did that with my son. We I, we took him out for a year, uh, for a term, and it was so much fun.
0: You're brilliant, Cliff Stafford Smith. You can teach anybody
1: anything. No, like I huh? loved it. No, I tell you what, I learned so much on that.
0: I loved to be with my kids. I loved to be able to kiss them and hug them and sniff them Whenever I wanted. The education part of it was not my bliss, but I, I wa- they were so wanted and they were so desperately longed for. I literally can't imagine wanting to ship them off and not have anything to do with them.
1: You know, Em and I, we went through nine rounds of IVF to get wealth, which talk about wanted. You know, I, I thought about my dad at one point when we first had wealth. I think I kissed him more in the first day of his existence than my dad did in my whole life and that's unfortunate
0: what's boarding school like for an adolescent suffering as you did from bulimia
1: oh i and that's an interesting thing that i don't pretend to have uh, a full understanding of in terms of why i tend in my mind to think that it was because my mother and sister were always on diets and that I got very self-conscious about food. But there has to be lots more to it than that, and it's actually something I've never explored in an expert fashion, uh, and I I should, and I'd be interested. I went and pumped on every morning at 6 o'clock. I'd go down in the pouring rain to the gym. But as part of that, at age 15 or 16, I just suffered from bulimia. So I just wouldn't eat and I would vomit and all the rest of it. And I'm six, three and a half, and I weighed about 130 pounds. I'm pretty skinny now and I'm 205. So, you know, more than a third of my body weight off. I just don't know what it is. I'm looking at myself now. I don't know where you could take a third of that off, frankly. I might just... Chop off my nose, that would be a substantial amount. It was interesting to read all the letters from back then because my mom would tell me to eat up, but she didn't notice that I was really actually quite ill. And in school, no one did because it just wasn't on their radar that boys would do that. And I think it still isn't. You know, we, we hear about anorexia and bulimia, and we think of that as women worried about, you know, looking at Vogue magazine too much which is obviously at some level true. But we don't think men do it, and they do. And I think it's kind of good to talk about it, partly because we need to make sure other young men get help, but also partly because we need to get away from all the nonsense we've on women. My wife has a saying, which I think is incredibly true, that I'm so glad that Wilf has internalized, which is that advertising is basically... A system of depriving you of your uh, well, depriving you of and me of our self-esteem, and then selling it back to us as, at a price. The project I'm working on later today is about. It's called the 3D Center, which is something I want to set up. Very grandiose, obviously, because it's something I want to do. Which is a school to mentor young people in their passions and to help them get over the lack of confidence that we instill in them. And to get over this notion that the goal in life is to get a job that shit that you don't really want to do. Um, You know, how many times have you heard some young person who wants to be a musician be told, well, you need to get a proper job? No, you don't. You need to do the thing that is your great passion, but we've got to work out the way to do it and get around society's ridiculous consumerist things. And it's sort of always interesting talking to people How many times, Tammy, are you going to get to to go through life? But you've only got one chance. And so we've got to help young people who are going through it for their first and only time uh, to resist a society that's actually had a lot of practice, at screwing people over. You know, it's not that hard. It's just we don't do it. Because
0: we are raising a generation of kids who really don't have a modicum of self-esteem for a variety of reasons. Do
1: you think that? Do you think that's true? Mm, I, don't. God, I don't. I don't. You don't? No, I think the kids today are so much more with it than my generation.
0: In some respects, 100%, but in other respects, I just think that I think they're flogged on a daily basis with feeling, as you indicated earlier, less than, that they need to improve this or tweak this or work on this in order to be acceptable in society. And it's just... Fraudulent. I have a friend of mine that literally takes her child around and looks at every billboard and every sign and every bit of advertising and just says, "False fraud, false fraud. None of this is true. None of the- everything's been airbrushed." I actually had this amazing experience. I did a Photoshop course. I, I can't do Photoshop to save my life, but anyway, I did this. Oh, this right. I hope you're going to
1: tell us. I, I would love to do that. I know. No, it's yeah.
0: fantastic. And I did this two day course with this incredibly enigmatic guy. He was amazing. And as a community service, he goes into schools and starts with a screen with a lump of poo on the screen, right? Mm-hmm. And with three clicks of the mouse turns the lump of poo into a supermodel. And he <laughs> and he really, really wants to, I mean, he does this professionally and he works for the world's top models and whatever. He curates the way that we see the world. But the truth of the matter is, is that he wants us to know the art behind it and the science behind it, because he realizes that it is.
1: But, so the, the, the exact flip side of what you're saying, though, is my son has Logic Pro, which is the sort of professional version of GarageBand. He's only twelve, but it's you know how you can you know manipulate music and things. He took the sound of a cat fart and manipulated that sound a hundred different ways into a piece of music. I think that's amazing. And, yeah, you're manipulating it, but you're doing it in a fantastically interesting way.
0: I actually want to say thank you to Wilf, who I don't Mm. know, but I really do need to say thank you to him because never in my wildest dreams did I imagine I'd be having a chat with Clive Stafford-Smith who'd be talking about a cat fart.
1: I know, isn't it? I know. my whole day yeah. <laughs> i love it i love it now i'm this is a challenge to all the youth of australia show your parents <laughs> what you can do with a cat paw. and then you can go on <laughs> to various other excrescences
0: <laughs> oh my goodness well if you only live once i'm glad that i'm experiencing this because this is gold <laughs> okay so boarding school ends You get accepted, as you've indicated earlier, to Clare College at Cambridge, but you are clearly the man that opts for the road less travelled. So I need to understand what drew this well-heeled British young man to turn down his place at probably the world's most prestigious and highly sought-after university on the planet, to relocate to study journalism at the University of North Carolina, and no disrespect to anyone who attends that university, but I don't think you can say them in the same sentence, you went there. You just did.
1: You just did. I did.
0: <laughs> and then you decided to enrol in Columbia University's Law School and that ultimately took you to devoting your entire legal career to defending people on death row. So I want you to just take me through that journey. Why didn't you go to Cambridge?
1: Yeah, look, I'll do it quickly. Um, look, I was my A levels were physics, chemistry, mathematics, and further mathematics, and you know my brother's good at that stuff, and he's made a career out of being a scientist. I was bored to death. Um, I think unless you're a genius, you reach a level that is where you're going to reach. And I really always, always wanted to be a writer. So so I would be writing my essays every week um, and they gradually escalated from 10 pages to 100 pages. And I love that. Um, but Radley wanted me to do natural sciences because of some misbegotten notion of what's academic. So I was doing my physics, chemistry, maths, and further maths. I just didn't want to do it. I actually wanted to also have something to do with human beings, which might be interesting, you know? There, I was wanting to be a journalist. And and I was obsessed with the death penalty already. I was obsessed with the death penalty when I was um, 18. But um, because I'd done this sort of essay about it, which I thought was a history essay, but I was amazed to discover it was a current affairs essay. But... I learned that in America, the richest country on earth, if you're on death row, you have no right to a lawyer. That if you can pay for one, you can have one, but if you can't, you can't. And it was just horrifying. And even I, you know, I didn't have much self-perception, but even I could figure out that maybe I could contribute more by going to law school than writing a book that no one would read. So that's why I did.
0: Can we talk about one of your earliest death row cases that have? Edward Earl Johnson and his Mm -hmm. last two weeks on Earth that was memorialised in the film that not only changed my life but has probably haunted me ever since called 14 Days in May. He was a client of yours very early on in your legal career but you only came on board his case quite late. Can you tell me about Edward?
1: Well, Edward and I were exactly the same age. This was 1987. We were both 26 at the time. He was a young African-American guy, 18 years old, when he was sentenced to death in Walnut Grove, Mississippi, very near Philadelphia, which you'd know from Mississippi Burning was the place that um, the three civil rights workers were, were murdered by the Klan. And he was, you know, he's a black kid who was accused of raping a white woman and killing a white cop, neither of which things did he do. And indeed... The white woman, Sally Franklin, knew him because Edward was brought up by his granny, this wonderful woman, Jessie May. And Jesse worked with Aunt Sally. And so Sally said, no, it's not him. Um, but then the cops created a case. And, you know, he was represented by two very well intentioned African American lawyers, who were so intimidated, the barely went to the county before the trial because it still was. This was 1979 the trial. So it was only, you know, 20 less than 20 years after the civil rights murders. And it was still a very, very similar world. So he was sentenced to death and he'd lost all his appeals. And I was, and look, it was Mississippi. I was doing a bunch of work in Mississippi. I was only, you know, two and a half years out of law school. But, um, but, you know, I'd never lost a case and I thought I knew everything. (laughs) Typical. And so I offered to help out because my good friend Ken Rose had lost his case up to Len and, you know, you want someone else to take a look. So we had three weeks to stop it and I looked back on, and we did lose in 14 days in May and more than lost. The warden was an intensely decent human being called Don Cabana, who, unlike almost all the Gordons, was really about showing respect to everyone and trying to make an absolutely barbaric system um, somehow palatable. So he was very decent, and he allowed the whole family to come in to have Edward's last dinner of shrimp and all these mad things they do And dear Don, who I became very friendly with, you know, he was trying so hard to make this seem normal. And he was asking Edward how the shrimp was. You've never had shrimp before and all that sort of stuff. But then he allowed me to be in the cell with Edward all the way through. And the BBC, my friend Paul Heyman um, had been trying to do this film. And I told him, look, Paul, we're going to ruin your film. You know, you do the film and we'll get a stay. Um, And we didn't. And, they filmed it all the way through. I had to break the news to Edward as we lost in the U.S. Supreme Court and then as the governor denied clemency. And then the crew left, but I was actually allowed to go with Edward into the gas chamber and where I gave him a hug and he whispered in my ear, is there something you know that I don't know? And I didn't understand what he meant at that moment. It was a very difficult time, which is possibly an understatement. But I worked out that he really, really thought that someone was going to call cut. And I thought, you know, actually at some level, this is why I'm so grateful to the BBC for being there, because it made this possible for Edward to get through, because he just didn't believe it was going to happen. Uh, Until the very last minute and when he was in the gas chamber and the phone rang and I was in the witness room and, you know, we all thought, oh, well, maybe that's the last minute reprieve. But it wasn't. It was the call to say, go ahead. And uh, that's really when I think Edward figured out they were actually going to do it. And then they gassed him. And I won't pretend that I don't want to exact a certain amount of revenge on the state of Mississippi for that. I sued them. Um, I wanted to get rid of the gas chamber as the first thing. So they used Cyclone B in the gas chamber, the same as uh, as Auschwitz. So we sued them on the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz with an Auschwitz survivor as the co-plaintiff to eliminate the gas chamber, which we won. Um, You know, that's one small step. But then we made a follow-up documentary called The Journey to... Try to exonerate him there was a woman called mary at his funeral came up to me and said you know i know he didn't do it because i was with him at the time and i said to her you know well why didn't you tell someone and she said i did i went to the police and i told them and they told me to piss off and mind my own business and of course when you look at that there's only really ultimately one place that I can lay blame, which is on me. I was young and I thought legal issues were what mattered. And I thought I could save him by raising all these interesting legal issues. And I know a lot better now. And if I knew then what I know now, Edward would be alive today and he would be my age and he'd be grandfather and he'd be a lovely guy who all his grandkids love. Ultimately, I know that the people really responsible are the people who put him there and killed him, but, um, you know, I should have stopped him.
0: I I couldn't breathe when I watched that film. And, you know, you you made mention of the scene where the entire family were allowed to come in. And what struck me so much, I don't know, I'll probably break down now, but what struck me so much is that as heartbroken as they were, there was a resignation. And he didn't do it. Mm. He did not commit the crime and yet what it screamed was that there is such systemic racism that if you are a young black man and you are accused of something and you don't have all the resources in your arsenal to defend it, you are going to be at the mercy of the so-called justice system that is not remotely just. And the fact that his family could sort of somehow get their head around the fact that this was going to be his last few hours on earth was what really said that to me.
1: Perhaps there's one other thing, which is you've probably seen the film Ghostbusters and with the whole song about who you're going to call. If you're poor and black in Mississippi and your loved grandson is being railroaded towards execution, who are you going to call? Um, You know, you can't call Ghostbusters, you can't call the FBI, because that's all a myth. There's no one to call, which is why what my mum always used to say, which is those of us who are immensely privileged, and we all are, you are, most of the people listening to your show are immensely privileged. It it is our duty to get between the people doing the hatred and the people being hated. And, you know, years later, this came back to me even more, when I started representing, I, I brought the first case with a couple of friends against Guantanamo Bay on February the 19th, 2002. Part of The job I took on primarily was to go around the different countries to find the relatives of the prisoners, because it was all secret. No one actually knew the names of people in Guantanamo, and mm-hmm. um, that was a classified thing of all absurdities. And so I would travel around, and I would, for example, go to Sanaa in Yemen, and I'd I'd advertise on a meeting, and I'd say, I'm here to offer free help for your loved ones in Guantanamo. Now, the average per capita income in Yemen at the time was $300 a year, and then you'd have to not eat for the rest of the year. And so if you want to help your loved person out in Guantanamo, you just can't do it. So what are, they, what are these poor folk meant to do? So I would go and, you know, I, I'd always start by saying to a bunch of really angry people who were really pissed off that the West was doing this to someone they loved, who was, who was meant to be the worst of the worst terrorist in the world, but actually they knew wasn't, they'd be so angry. And I would start off by saying, look, I'm American and I'm here to say, I'm sorry. So that's our job, isn't it? That's what your four kids are going to have to do for the next 80 years, 90 years.
0: I just don't understand. I I don't mean to be glib because it's not appropriate and we're talking about some very, very serious stuff here, but I don't understand how you could possibly go to anybody and say, I'm American. You sound like Prince Charles.
1: (laughs) How would anybody? that's not glib. That's just (laughs) rude. That is just rude. (laughs) You mean I sound like my family has been inbreeding for centuries and that I still haven't got my job and I'm 70 and I'm really annoyed at my mother. I mean, I think that's the truth. You know, I'll tell you something. Yeah, I'm half American, half British, but when I was...
0: But you're not, because you speak like this, and I can hear it, and it's so strong, and it's so, you know, it's not like, I mean, you've lived in America for such a long period of time, and you haven't actually taken on one word that sounds remotely Yankee. Do you so know why? I Do don't really why? understand. I hate I to say in
1: it's because why? it's because there was a study done in Georgia that, um, on average, Georgians think that someone with a British accent is twice as smart as they are. So it's a huge benefit, right? And I people, I, I just love it. It's just such rubbish, of course. But um, I got through a trial one time, and this juror came up to me, and she was very nice, and she said, "I love your accent. I didn't understand a word you said from beginning to end of trial, but I could listen to you all day long." And I'm sitting there thinking, "Oh my god." We've just been talking about life and death, and this woman's just told me she didn't understand anything, which is probably a good thing, and it's probably the reason she probably. voted our way, where she had no yes. idea that I was telling her she wasn't meant to do that shit. Um, you know, that's- <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> Oh, that's beautiful. This is funny. We We met... I was in the UK and I went and saw Lorelai oh. that's actually, I met you and you don't, no, please, please don't feign. No, no, no I don't. Please I miss- have no
1: idea. No <laughs> idea, Tammy. I'm not feigning knowledge at all. But oh, Lorelai was a do. great <laughs> play, right, written by Australia. Oh, it was exceptional. Yeah. I mean, Australia doesn't, you know, we, we, we snare at your entire race, but that was a good play. It was a good play.
0: But the story behind it is even more epic and more compelling. And not everybody here would know about that particular case, the case of Ricky Langley and the remarkable Lorelei Guillory. Can you please tell me what that story and what that case meant to you and and basically how that all unfolded? Because it it kind of beggars belief and I know that it had a huge impact on your
1: life. Well, it did. I mean, Lorelei is one of my great heroes. She's a most extraordinary woman. She is a alcoholic, uneducated woman from Southwest Louisiana who has lots of her own demons, but she was able to show something that I think both the vast majority of people can't, but politicians actively try to get people not to do this because politicians are, as we have agreed, total assholes by and large. So this is the story. Ricky Langley was a guy I represented who – was sentenced to death at his first trial and then we were lucky enough to get a retrial and I was doing his retrial and his his history was this. He was one of the most hated people in America for quite a while, that he was pedophile um, but and he killed Lorelei's child, Jeremy, who was six. But when you started looking into Ricky, um, before Ricky was born in 1964, his dad was driving along Drunk with his wife Bessie and two kids, Oscar Lee and his sister. Oscar Lee was six and his sister was four in the car. The father, dro- LC drove off the road into a telegraph pole and his two kids were thrown through the front windscreen. One was decapitated, both were killed instantly. Bessie was thrown through the windscreen and was not killed but was horribly injured. And Bessie was then in charity hospital in New Orleans for most of two years, and she was in a body cast from her neck to her ankles. And I made some poor Australian who was interning with us young woman, demonstrate all of this in court, not quite all of it, because when she was in this body cast, she got pregnant because Alcide was, um, let's say, a domineering husband. And no one believed she was pregnant. They didn't believe she could get pregnant. Um so, for five months, the fetus who would turn out to be Ricky, was bombarded with his own private hiroshima of x rays and all these drugs that she was taking. One of the drugs she was taking um had been has now been linked if you 're exposed in utero to pedophilia if you'd believe that we didn't even present this to the jury because i don 't think anyone would believe it, but it 's true but anyway, Ricky was that baby and At five and a half months, they figure out she's pregnant. They cut open her body cast, whoosh. The doctors say, look, you've got to have an abortion. You know, this is what we've done to that fetus is unimaginable. Alcide, I'm Catholic. You're not having an abortion. So Bessie was required to go to town and Ricky was born. And Ricky was really messed up from day one. And so, you know, Ricky looks different he would be sleeping at age eight on tombstones. At age 10, he put a notice on the school notice board saying, I'm not Ricky Langley, I'm Oscar Lee, the dead brother. And Ricky is the most ill person I've ever represented, but he's also very intelligent. And he knows that we think he's on a different planet, but it's the planet he's on. And he he was sexually abused as a child and he'd been through all of this stuff, and he ends up molesting children. And he is convinced in his own mind that Oscar Lee is making him do it. So he's convicted of this in Georgia when he molested the daughter of uh, his cousin, sends to prison where he gets therapy. And for the first time, someone tells him he's a pedophile and they convince him that he's incurable. And um, So he's he's intelligent, and he writes a letter to the parole board saying, you've convinced me, you know, don't you go hating me because no one's going to hate me more than I do. Don't let me out of prison, whatever you do, because you've convinced me that I'm going to harm other children. But, of course, bureaucracy being what it is, They do. And, you know, I'm really glad I got a copy of his letter. At least it was in writing. And so then he goes back to Louisiana. They've told him that about a year later he's going to molest other children, that that's the nature of the disease. Whether that's true or not, he does uh, get his strong urges a year later. And he sees Jeremy. This is as he tells it. Um, And he thinks Jeremy is Oscar Lee. And now, you know, that's all... Nonsense, obviously, but there was this insight, perhaps, that there was a picture of Jeremy and a picture of Oscar Lee and their own aunt couldn't tell them apart. But nonetheless, obviously, Jeremy's not Oscar Lee, but Ricky wants to do away with his tormentor and ends up strangling the poor child. Now, poor Lorelai is the mother, and Ricky is vilified as the most evil person on the planet. He's trying to get himself executed to begin with. Lorelei struggles through the first trial and stuff. And then I meet her, and what she really wants to do is understand how this nightmare that any parent would just be horrified by, how this nightmare came upon her. And so we talk, and I say, look, this is what Ricky says, and I believe him, but uh, I don't know if it makes it any better for you. She said she really wants to talk to him. and Ricky wanted to talk to her because you know yes he may be such psychi- psychiatrically really disturbed but he knows what happened and he just wanted to say i'm sorry and do whatever he could so she goes down to the jail and sits in the same room as ricky for three hours while they talk and you know she'd always call them langley and whatever when she gets to the end of it she says to him she says ricky i'm gonna fight for you And she marches down to the DA's office, another uh, French-term arsehole. And Lorelai is with a woman that we'd got to help her who was a victim's advocate, a wonderful woman called Kate Lernstein, whose own father was a congressman who had been murdered. They go in to see Vic the Dick Brown. He listens to Lorelai say she doesn't want the death penalty and then says, well, Ms. Guillory, you're a very strange defendant, I mean victim. And then he tries to take away her other child, saying she's an unfit mother because she doesn't want to murder the guy who killed her it's not son. You know, just madness. Lorelei is deeply offended by all of this, and she wants to testify that she doesn't want the death penalty. But we pick a jury, lovely group of people. I love picking juries. It's such an interesting thing. And picked 12 delightful people, all of whom had real experiences of family members who had uh, all sorts of troubles and they were never going to kill Ricky. They really weren't. They hated the DA and they laughed at all my bad jokes. Um, So Mm -hmm. it was going well. And I told Lorelai, you know, we're not going to get to a penalty phase. You know how in America, there are two trials, one on whether you did it and one on whether you get the death penalty. And I said, I don't think these people are going to convict him of first degree murder. So, Lorelei, very religious, she goes away and prays and comes back the next morning and says, look, the logic of my position is that he was insane. And if he was insane, he shouldn't go to prison. So if you can guarantee for me that he'll go to a hospital and never come out, then I want to testify that he should be found not guilty by reason of insanity. And, you know, Ricky was happy to sign something saying, you know, I'm, you know, he really only wanted to be studied for the benefit of others. He wanted to be a guinea pig. Uh, so he was happy to sign away that. And so she testifies the next day. I promised her that I'd only ask her what she wanted to uh, answer. So I only asked her one question, which was this. And, you know, you're liable to catch me in another moment of emotion here, Tammy. It's awful. I said, Ms. Gilry, do you have an opinion as to whether that man over there who killed your son was mentally ill when he did it? She turns to the jury and she says, Well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. I think Ricky Langley has been crying out for help since the day he was born. And for whatever reason, his family, society, the legal systems never listened to him. As I sit on this witness chair, I can hear the death cries of my own son, but I can still hear that man crying out for help. And I think he was mentally ill when he did what he did most powerful thing I've ever heard in a courtroom. And, you know, look, it's actually always very difficult doing closing arguments in a death penalty case. This was easy. I just said, you know, listen to what the lady said. She's amazing. Now that, you know, the prosecutors did all sorts of evil things to try and get the jury to kill him, but they, they failed. And indeed they did acquit him of first-degree murder, although they convicted him of something else just because they were afraid he was gonna get let out of the hospital. And this case is dragged on now for 27 years in total. But Lorelei is such a hero. And when you think about it, you know, she struggled to try to understand the incomprehensible. And you know, she would never say, I forgive Ricky. No, I don't. She she hates him at one level but she wanted to show mercy. And I just think, wow, what a hero. When the government is always trying to tell victims they should hate people and they should want revenge and they should want to do nasty things. And here's this woman who was not given the privileges I was given, but is able to do this miracle. Absolutely amazing. So. Uh, some very good friends in Australia did a play about it. And, and there was one, you know, one woman play basically called Lorelei with just old Tom Wright sitting there in an orange jumpsuit as Ricky. And I just wish we could turn that into a film about Lorelei because I'd like that woman to be recognized around the world because no one, not everyone can be Lorelei, but boy, it would do them good to try because she was able to dissipate all of the hatred she had, basically. Uh, still an awful struggle, but she was able to do this fantastic thing, and it was wonderful for her, and it was a real gift for Ricky. I I
0: think that – I mean – It is such an extraordinary story. But as a mother myself, I don't believe that I could be that evolved. Now, I have to say I don't believe in capital punishment. I never have. I don't believe it is the right of a government to take another person's life. I don't. I also have said very plainly on this same podcast when I was talking to a sexual assault victim who was sexually assaulted as a child if anyone touched the hair on the heads of one of my kids, I'd kill them. And that, that's not an invitation for the authorities to put me on high alert. It's just that I can't fathom how someone has that grace. Well, but I, I,
1: I accept what you're saying. I mean, if someone tried to do harm to Wilf, I would do anything to stop it, obviously. Um, and and I think his parents, most of us would do that. But it's a different thing when something's happened, and you're trying to deal with it, I totally get the instinct, whether it's either what you would do, or what would be good for you is, and I don't mean that in a paternalistic, Tammy, that wouldn't be good for you sort of way. But is it actually what's going to help you to be filled up with The desire to kill—I don't think so.
0: A hundred percent, not. And the the evidence, and the the research suggests that nobody has ever felt any catharsis because they watched someone be killed in the electric chair or administered a a lethal injection. Uh, There is no victim that has ever been able to say, hand on heart, they actually felt better because that
1: happened. I mean, I've been a victim of a whole bunch of crimes. Um, You know, you live in America. you are, you know, and I got really good at it. I went very badly the first time when I was held up and I ended up in a hospital. But after that, I got good. And it happened seven times. Seven? What well, What happened seven times? Someone pulls a gun. and
0: So it was the same crime?
1: Well, sometimes it was a knife. Sometimes it was a gun. No, knives are worse than guns, frankly, from my perspective. You know, the first time, unfortunately, when I was being held up, I didn't quite realise what was going on. So I fought back and that was not a good idea because there were three of them and one of me and i ended up in hospital so some chap would pull a gun and i would say look i'm a defense lawyer why don't you go mug a fucking prosecutor and leave me alone because you'll need me one day and that (laughs) and then uh what a brilliant Normally I got my wallet back. You know, they got the money.
0: Of course you did. Uh, that's pretty disarming. Yeah,
1: but, I mean, they can have the money. Yeah. It's cheaper than getting a speeding ticket, but I just want my wallet that's got all my cards and stuff. That was okay. So, um, you know, there you go. That's just free advice for when you're next in America and you're held up.
0: I think I'll just call you. I think that might be an easy thing to do. Clive, how do you close your eyes at night when you know that someone you're representing is on death row and they're living in such squalor and such degradation. And we're not even talking about how psychologically harrowing and gruelling it is to be on death row. How do you go to your lovely home? I'm certainly not saying this with any judgment. I'm just asking you, how do you compartmentalise so that you can actually function? I
1: mean, it's another reason why it's really useful to have been totally traumatised at a young age by boarding school. I can do that. It's not like you leave your work behind. It's not work, Tammy. I love what I get to do. You know, yeah, there are bad moments, but we win 99% of cases. And to be able to take someone's life and give it back to them is an amazing feel. I mean, people always ask this stupid-ass question about, you know, how do you do the job you do? If you made me be a corporate lawyer representing some point as bullshit all day long for some worthless corporation yeah that'd be tough but representing a human being and you know everyone is you know sister alan prejean always used to say we're all better than our worst 15 minutes and like my clients i really do and we're friends and the people who say you shouldn't be emotionally attached to your clients what a load of nonsense you can't represent someone if you're not friends with them
0: and invested. You've got to be invested, invested in their
1: I mean, You've got to be sincere. I mean, notwithstanding my emotional traumas, I have never been able to do a closing argument at the penalty phase without weeping because the very idea that these jurors are being asked to kill someone is just totally mad. Now, you know, it's actually quite easy to deal with in the American context, much easier than I think Australia or Britain would be because one of the first lessons I learned was not to speak Greek to a Roman, um, I would, the first trial I did was I was young incredibly stupid, and one year out of law school, I quoted Shakespeare at the jury as one does. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the... You're going to start mimicking me again, aren't you, Tim? So this old lawyer came up to me from the back of the courtroom called Bobby Lee Cook, and he said, "Clive, that's a mighty fine piece of poetry, but these here jurors, they don't know who Shakespeare is. I've used the same quote myself, but I began by saying, I think it was in the book of Job I read. And then he quotes Shakespeare, right? And he wins his case. And and there was a follow-up to that, of course. He he said, the prosecutor called him in the middle of the night and said, Bobby Lee, I've read the book of Job three times, and it's not in there. (laughs) Now, look, you don't lie to jurors. That's just really wrong and bad. But... What it did teach me was you speak their language. And Tammy, what's your favorite Bible verse?
0: Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. All right.
1: Now, I, well, where does that come from? What's the chapter and verse? I'm oh, um, lazy. Oh, See, that just shows it. you're not American. The Americans will tell you a verse, and they'll tell you, "Well, I think it's you know John verse seven, whatever." That. And you have to be able to figure that out. And I went to church every day in my life up to the age of 18, so at least I can do it. If they say uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, case is over, right? As you would well know from your knowledge of the Beatitudes. Um, And, you know, I, I don't want you to show off, so I'll tell you what it says. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. That's what it's all about. Now, when you're talking to an American jury, that's their language. And that's what I love about jurors. They may be the most right wing Republicans in the world. But in the closing argument, what you're saying to them is basically this I'm telling you, you should show mercy. That prosecutor over there is telling them you shouldn't show mercy. Now, the deal is if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, if you show mercy, you get mercy. If you don't show mercy, you don't. So if you do what she says, you go to hell. Whereas if you do what I say, you don't. So it's your choice. That's, it's just that simple. That's really the way Americans think, you know, most of them. And even if they got these stupid ideas that the death penalty is a good idea, when push comes to shove and you talk to them about it in their own language and you say to them, well, look, when you go back to the jury room, just imagine there are 13 jurors, not 12. And you all say what you, you think. And then you get to the 13th juror and it's Jesus. And you say, hey, JC, what do you think? Do you really, really think Jesus is going to say, fry the motherfucker? Of course he's not. You know, that's the way the American system works. And that's why, actually, it's a great structure, because we get to understand those jurors and we get to understand the decency in them. And I picked 12 Pentecostals one time uh, who would fry you as soon as look at you. But what's the worst crime a human being can commit, Tammy? No, no. See, that's not what a Pentecostal would say. They'd say, failing to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. My client was a true Christian. The prosecutor wasn't. So she was guilty of a greater crime than my client. That's a great place to be in a capital trial. Right. And those jurors came back with mercy in less than an hour in a dreadful, dreadful case because of their beliefs. Now, I love that about people. I love it, that if you can figure out, what well, the languages, you can get people to do great things
0: wow i think that the legacy of your work genuinely will be known for generations to come <laughs> as well as your sardonic sense of humor and your incredible passion for your family it just oozes off you i can't explain you're very humorous and you're very witty and you're very brilliant but there's a really exceptionally, amazingly good person underneath all of that. And I don't even know how I can thank you for agreeing to come on Brave Journeys and to share with me with such an open heart. It's been it's been exceptional and I'm so grateful. Can we do this again sometime? Yeah. Because it's been, I know you don't like this, but it has been an incredible privilege for me and an incredible honor. No, I
1: do I, I love having these conversations. I'm sorry I should have. I really wish we would talk more about you. I've got some lovely things I'd love to ask you, but we'll have. Have to do that in a pub one day, perhaps.
0: We'll do that in a pub mm. any okay. day. It will be a privilege for me to do okay. that, but just maybe not on this podcast. No, it's been it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye. Hi, Clive. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening today. The Brave Journey of my next guest is equally compelling, and I'm sure you won't want to miss it. Please join me by subscribing to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. Oh, and if you love the show, please don't forget to rate it and leave a review. Brave Journeys was created, hosted, and executive produced by me, Tam Faraday. But I couldn't do this without my wonderful team, including my audio editor, Zoltan Fecho, and a very special thank you to George Weinberg ask me any questions or let's chat about the episode on Instagram at Tam Faraday. That's T-A-M-F-A-R-A-D-A-Y. I'm Tam Faraday and I'll see you on TammyFaraday.com. That's Tammy with an I. See you next week.